This is season one, episode nine of Mastering the RPG, a tabletop RPG podcast all about upping your game. Doesn't matter if you're a game master or player, you'll find advice, ideas, and some strong opinions. Our episode tonight is Modern Gaming versus Old School, or The Decline of the Ten Foot Pole. Welcome to Mastering the RPG, as I said, a tabletop RPG podcast with advice, ideas, cool stuff found, and some opinions. And some of them are strong. We hope you get something out of it. I'm Carl with my co-hosts, Eric and James. You can find all the information about the show and our hosts at MasteringTheRPG.com. That's all one word. And if you want to send us some email, give us some feedback, ask us to adjudicate some questions, um, send us an email at GameMaster at MasteringTheRPG.com. That's also all one word. So, hey, guys, good to see you. Great to get together again. G'day. Yeah. Good to have James back. (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. Good to be back. (laughs) Now, we have something very special. Uh, instead of jumping into a cool stuff sound, we actually had a question come to us through uh, Twitter from Daddy Dungeon Master. And thank you for saying you're a big fan. That's great. Uh, but the big question was, how could you adapt Call of Cthulhu um, to Savage Worlds, the, the uh, sanity mechanic? And question answers. Question Maybe use that in Savage Worlds. Um, so we've got James, who knows all about Call of Cthulhu, and there's also Eric will talk a little bit about there's already something in Savage Worlds. So, hey, James, tell us a little bit about that sanity mechanic in Call of Cthulhu and how it might it might work. Yeah, but no worries at all. Thanks, Daddy Dungeon Master. So uh, looking at adapting Call of Cthulhu, particularly the sanity mechanic, to Savage Worlds. Okay, uh, Call of Cthulhu, fantastic game, really, really cool. If you haven't tried it, go play it now because it's really good. Um, is a percentage-based skill horror game um, where basically you have a big long list of skills and one of those abilities or skills is sanity. The difference, I guess, between Call of Cthulhu and, uh, and other role-playing games is this heavy sanity thing. Um, basically what happens every time that you uh, you encounter something horrible, horrific, either a monster or a, or a, a body or a, some, something untoward, uh, you would make a roll called a sanity check. Um, it's a percentage-based roll. Um, and, it, and it is not only a roll, but it's also a pool of, uh, of, of energy, similar to a, a hit points or a magic points. So uh, if you fail that roll, you'll lose sanity um, and you'll lose uh, out of that pool of sanity Um, and essentially as the game progresses the more sanity that you lose the more likely it is that you'll have uh, a a psychotic attack or or some kind of um, mental trauma that that can uh, affect you during the game in that it can take you out of the game for about a minute if you're in combat or it can take you out of uh, out of the game for about an hour if you're out of combat so it's a it's a dwindling resource that um, that you roll against if you see something terrible and if something terrible happens often enough, then uh, then you you'll have uh, you'll have debilitating uh, um, interactions with the game for a short period of time. The other thing is is as that pool dwindles, then um, and in the longer term, it makes it more and more difficult to resist 
um, uh, things that might send you insane. So it is. there's an accumulation here. There's a snowballing effect in terms of Call of Cthulhu. Um, was that clear enough? It's a tricky thing explaining rules uh, yeah. vo- um, well, I verbally, but <laughs> I guess the big thing with the best, th- the biggest thing about sanity within Call of Cthulhu is how big an issue it is within the game. Um, so it's a, it's not just a little thing that you add on. It's actually a very significant part of that game. Um, and it's I've like a more... domino effect, right? And it's that's the it big is, part yeah. is that once you're getting worse, it just makes it harder and harder. Yeah, correct. So once you okay. start losing it. You, the, the door kind of shuts. So for longer-term campaigns, you tend to lose more people through the loss of sanity than you do, say, of losing your hit points and dying, for example. Um, so it's a, a very different different uh, mechanic in terms of that game. I hear there's something similar in Savage Worlds, though. Uh, Eric, you had a bit of a hunt around yes. and, and thought of something immediately. Yeah, uh, I did have a hunt around, and we talked a bit about how we could do this. So, you know, up front, everybody knows about the fear system, or if you play Savage Worlds, it's it's uh, one of the systems in there where if you encounter something that is a um, some type of phobia or fear or whatever it is, you roll... Um, uh, you roll your spirit uh, modified by the the fear of the monster, usually a plus two or maybe up to a plus four. Um, if you fail that, then you roll on a fear table where most of the things are temporary. And then at the very end, there's a major phobia or a minor phobia hindrance that you can get. And then the heart attack is basically you can die from that. But uh, it's a little bit hard to do that. That's the kind of base fear. Um, but when you guys mentioned that, I immediately thought of the really, really, really old horror companion from the Adventure Edition. Or not the Adventure Edition, the uh, Explorer's Edition. Um, which actually has a sanity mechanic, which lines up pretty well, and it still works for mm. Suede. It lines up pretty well with the Cthulhu, but we did think of a couple of tweaks. So I'll explain how that uh, is written in the book and then our tweaks. So basically... Um, Every character has a sanity pool, which is a derived statistic, just like parry or t- uh, toughness, which is your uh, half your spirit plus two. Um, so somebody with a D6 in spirit would have a five um, in their sanity pool. Um, every time somebody loses uh, a fear roll, they uh, they automatically um, lose a point of sanity. And if, it, if they rolled a one um, on their fear roll, uh, then they lose two points of sanity. Um, so... You know, obviously, nobody wants to roll a one on the spirit, but that's what would happen in that case. Um, once they say, once a, a hero with under two sanity um, has, uh, there's something weird about them. There's kind of a little quirk. And they talk about that a player should pick a minor habit, um, which is one of the hindrances in the book, uh, to reflect that. And then it kind of goes away after sanity three, uh, once you're above sanity three. Um the big thing is once a character hits sanity zero, then they become genuinely deranged and they have to roll on a psychosis table. And there's a whole table with stuff like uh, flashbacks, uh, which affects um, initiative or, uh, uh, yeah, fatalists, which gives you a minus to like persuasion rolls. I mean, you would just, it, it says charisma, but in our case, we would talk about persuasion or command radius is halved. Basically, it affects how they interact with people. Things like addiction, like you get the addiction hindrance. Paranoia, you would get delusional, stuff like that. So there's all this stuff uh, where the highest one will actually kill you by, you basically go so crazy that the GM takes control. Um, and uh, the modifier on the initial fear roll that triggered the psychosis is added to this roll. So uh, plus 23 is the permanent psychosis that takes you out of the game. Um, uh, to recover sanity, which you can do, um, there's basically three ways. Uh, once somebody triumphs over evil, they're able to attempt to recover sanity. A month of rest in like an institution or somewhere nice, um, they can attempt it. And the healing spell 
which says automatically recovers one point of sanity um, within the golden hour, kind of like wounds or two with a raise. And then greater healing restores all of them. Um, actual psychoses can be removed in the same way um, as regaining sanity. But this, uh, oh, I should, sorry, I should talk. Um, when you when those things happen with recovering sanity, the player has to make a smarts roll, um, and that's what actually determines. So after they've had their month of rest, uh, they make a smarts roll, and if they fail, they don't recover anything. A success moves uh, gives you back one point, and a raise gives you back two points. So um, yeah, and and then going back to psychosis to recover psychosis, the smarts roll is just done at a minus four. So if you instead wanted to recover from a psychosis, you would do it at a minus four. All right, that was a lot of um, so, <laughs> language. So yeah. so Did that make Savage sense? I kind has, of rambled. And uh, we had talked a little bit about yeah. what Call of Cthulhu. We talked a little bit about taking some of those elements because they're a little bit different, right? And merging them yeah. into what you found in the Horror Companion, which was is actually very good to start with. So um, go ahead, go ahead, and uh, I think you were taking notes on our conversation. You want to talk a little bit about how that might merge? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think overall, we kind of all agreed that it, it fits pretty well. I mean, there's this, yeah. you know, you have your normal yeah. fear rolls. And if you're in a horror game, like a Cthulhu type of situation, there's going to be a lot of fear rolls going your way. So GM, for one, just make them do a lot of fear rolls. Um, to make this system kind of more punishing than even it is, which it already is pretty punishing. Uh, I think the first thing we said is get rid of the healing spell. Uh, being able to recover sanity that just doesn't make any sense um, so just get rid of that completely um, uh, again for the recovering sanity that month of rest um, James was saying how usually it's either kind of in an institution which it talks about here and that gives you a plus two um, in the Savage Worlds version but it costs money right so it says typically costs about a thousand a week and if you're there for a month right that's four thousand dollars so if they are in a, 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 something like that then it costs them but he talked about how if you're not in an institution you have to be in a place like your hometown or you know a place yeah. where i don't know you first had your your first date with your wife or something right somewhere special that that means something to you and then if you or fail with, that role or with someone yeah. or with someone special so one okay. way to recover recover sanity in call of cthulhu is you hang out with at your favorite bar or go and catch up with your your cherished aunt or take a drive in your in your fancy car do some of these things and yeah. that's how you how you can uh, recover your sanity the issue is is at the end of that period you make a role and if you fail that role then that place is a bit tainted and it doesn't give you the kind of uh, re you know the rest that the you return. need ever again ever again yeah. you know so it makes it a a little bit darker and a bit more macabre so I think adding that in is perfect. And there's already that smarts roll at the end. And it's a smarts roll, not a spirits roll uh, for recovering mm -hmm. sanity that's already in the hero, the horror system. So yeah, again, if you fail that smarts roll that you would normally roll, then then that, that place is gone to you. That is, it's burns. Whatever you, you've now associated it with your phobia or whatever, it, you can't use it again. Um, and perfect. then the final thing we wanted to add in here to really make it feel like Cthulhu, which it has that, like we talked about, that kind of domino effect, domino. The, the kind yep. of falling yep. house of cards that kind of where it gets worse as it goes, is that um, when you lose sanity, um, uh, how many points less of your total? So say if you had a pool of five and then you lost a point of sanity, upcoming fear rolls would then add on that negative. So say you have, you know, you have four out of your five sanity points and there's a fear roll coming at you with a minus two because it's a horrible creature. Um, you would actually roll fear at a minus three. Um, so it's so you're going to get that afraid that much easier. Now, we don't think you should add this onto the fear table. Right. So right. normally when you, you would add the same negative to the plus on the fear table, you don't need to add it there. 
Um, but this makes it so you have that kind of, you know, a, a stone rolling down a hill, right? Like that kind of feeling. Um, but you should definitely cap this at a minus three. Yeah. So yeah. basically like people with higher spirits aren't going to be punished more because they have larger pools. And this kind of lines up with wounds um, that minus three is the, the highest you can kind of get. So, yeah, I think I think those things, you know, we didn't have to tweak much to it, but getting rid of the healing, uh, putting the stuff in, like James said, about the month of rest, and then adding those negatives for fear rolls based on how much sanity you've already lost up to a minus three, I already think should probably emulate that feeling of dread kind of building and building and making it easier that you're losing your mind. And it will get you to zero sanity faster. Remember, once you get to zero sanity is when you actually start rolling on the psychosis table. And then one more thing that James had brought up um, is uh, when we were talking about it before is that often when like if you recover from, you know, uh, psychosis or recover from sanity or if you in the rules here, it says when you are at zero and you roll again and you roll again, you keep rolling the psychosis table. And if you roll the same thing, then it becomes worse that maybe just, you know, if they fail a fear check and they're at zero, um, zero sanity and they already have a psychosis, then just automatically make that psychosis worse. Yeah. You don't need to have, you know, because then this could really, yeah, you could have end up having like four extra hindrances and that's just a little bit too cumbersome. So, you know, they don't need to have a million things. Just make the thing that they have worse and worse, I think. So what do you guys No, think? I, to I totally agree. Yeah, you don't want to overcomplicate. Yeah, you don't want to overcomplicate the... Uh, overcomplicate the narrative and the role play either. You know, you know the, yeah. I can't imagine anything worse than playing someone with four different phobias. <laughs> a, bit, a, bit, a bit silly. But I, I think that's workable. Um, having said that, I do encourage you still to go back have a look at the Keeper's Book to Call of Cthulhu. Have a look at some of the tables in there. There's a lot of information in, in Call of Cthulhu that deals with sanity mechanics. Um, and so, you know, there's heaps of flavour. So if you are converting it to any system, go back to the source, have a bit of a look. There's some great tables and good resources there as well. And I think you could you could take stuff, like you can look at the psychosis table here and you could probably take stuff from those tables and just add them in to what possible roles can be, right? Like you can take yeah, a lot of absolutely. that flavor from those tables and just insert them into the psychosis table. So that would be cool too. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that'd make a good, that's a good mashup um, of the two, the two systems. Would have been probably harder if we didn't already have a lot of that work done in the Horror Companion previously. <laughs> so, <That's true. laughs> so, so hopefully uh, Daddy Dungeon Master that helped answer that question. Um, thanks again. I, I encourage everyone to send in questions or tweet us, whatever. Um, did I mention it was Game Master at MasteringTheRPG.com? I think I might have mentioned that, so I'll mention it again. Uh, so we're going to move right forward to the main topic. Hey everyone, we got the main topic now, and I think today James is going to lead us through it and take us uh, take the lead there. Absolutely, thanks, Carl. Um, our topic today is modern gaming versus old school, or the decline of the ten foot pole. I don't <laughs> dun, know if dun, you dun. gentlemen. Remember the days of 10-foot pole dungeoneering? Do you guys remember this? I, do you, you don't know how old I am, do you, then? You must not know. <laughs> <laughs> I know you know, Carl. Have you ever, have you ever had to pack a 10-foot pole in a backpack in your time playing role-playing games, Eric? 
Uh, I had is a strong word. We've definitely bought a 10-foot pole before in one of my games, but it was not a need. It was more of a, you know, this is hilarious. Uh, we, you know, just kind of a fun. What the hell? What the hell is this doing on the equipment list? Yeah. Why I mean, we knew we why it was there, but it was like we don't actually need this because the system doesn't you know, require you to be that granular. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, today we're going to be talking about all this kind of, there's an emerging argument that's probably been going on for quite a while about uh, old school versus modern role-playing gaming. Um, and and one of the terms that we hear bantied about all the time is this thing called OSR, yeah. um, old school revival or old school renaissance. Um, Carl, you're the oldest out of all of us. <laughs> what the hell is OSR or old school re- renaissance? Well, OSR <laughs> is really um, where people look back to the original D&D, old school D&D, and said, they look back and said, those were simpler times. Those were better times, um, <laughs> whether it is or not. But, but there's really a couple things that make OSR OSR. Um, the big one that people talk about all the time is rulings over rules. So OSR games traditionally had, or they had less rules, or everything wasn't codified. Now, those who, you know, re- who read the original um, Dungeon Master Guide for AD&D know that Gary liked to tell you absolutely every little detail of stuff that you could do. But we're talking the core rules were relatively simple. There weren't a lot of stats, there weren't a lot Spots. of skills. Yeah. And so the Game Master was making the rulings based on what players said they were trying to do. Um, so that's that's really the second thing. Fewer rules, less complicated in general. You didn't have things like feats. You didn't have things like skills generally. Now, some OSR stuff mm. has a little bit of skills because remember Rune Master and stuff like that had had skills. And then the last thing is... Um, and we had things like bend bars, lift gates as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Said that. We had extrapolated skills. Well, the big, yeah. yeah, the biggest skills <laughs> you had were the thief, right? Where you had a 5% chance of doing something at first level. <laughs> <laughs> and you roll the percentile yeah, dice. Right. But that, that goes back to, well, we'll talk a little bit of how that, that's changed in, in time. And then the last thing really is player skill versus character skill, right? In, in more modern yes. games, you have skills that are related to the character. There is a perception check you can have. In the old, kind of old school, player skill was more important. You had to tell me that you were doing something. And that's where the 10-foot pole came in, right? You're walking down the dungeon and you're telling the game master, yeah. I'm pushing, I'm bouncing in front of me so that I find that trap versus some you know, mechanical advantage you have where you can do a passive perception check or something like that. So that's kind of the thing that yeah, yeah. drives and, and that We're going to get a bit more into that kind of, into that specific as well in, uh, very shortly. So the two big things you're thinking in OSR is, is rules light and player skill over character skill. They're the two big standouts. Yeah, and, and they usually state that as rulings over rules is how people like to say it all the yeah, time. Yeah, okay. Yep. And I, I mean, wouldn't, and also character creation was, was much different, right? I mean, just even to the, the kind of rolling for stats, the methodology of that then and now, or? 3D sex straight down the line. Yeah, some, some but I, yeah. The, the OSR, <laughs> it's a renaissance. It doesn't, it doesn't say it has to do exactly the way Gary did it. Um, so most of the systems yeah. that you run into today, they think about like 46 or you know 3d6 drop or you know uh, drop lowest or not and, rolling at 46 all. drop on yeah, yeah, yeah or not, not even rolling at all. Yeah, they're not all 3d6 straight down the line um, as you know as was proper in the day to to be quite <laughs> so. Um, but that, you as mentioned was proper and and 
Sorry, and um, and in a lot of ways, this was almost competitive Dungeons and Dragons in the day. I remember a lot of adventures that were coming out. You weren't really designed to survive. These, this is not a time of attachment to your character. This is not a time of of narrative exposure with uh, with uh, you know storytelling and backstory and, and not not so much anyway. That that seems that was my experience in some in some manner. Would you agree with that as well? Um, yeah, I think. Um... If you think back to some of those old school adventures like White Plume Mountain and Tomb of Horrors, they're, they're meat grinders. Um, and that was the expectation yeah. is that, you know, I think even uh, uh, Gary back now, remember, old school Renaissance isn't like just do what Gary did. But those old those old ones really were meat grinders. You don't get too attached to your to your character. Now, when you build characters, they were much simpler to build. So, uh, you know, it wasn't I spent four hours trying to get my character just so and now you kill it it, yeah, it was yeah, much yeah. easier to make a character back then and and so osr and i guess yeah absolutely doesn't so, mean exactly that doesn't mean you're doing just what gary did but it's it's in that spirit so in the spirit of that i guess what i'd like to do is is have a bit of a look at what was so what are some of the things that were happening in in particularly fantasy role-playing games then and then how that might be different now when we're when we're approaching this and and why that might have occurred in between we'll we'll, we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about uh as well so um you know in in my experience back back in my day as as we might say you know we've got uh characters that we're not as attached to um that are you kind of beholden to the dice in a lot of ways they're much more simplified um we have things like hirelings and henchmen where you would buy extra characters, extra bodies to deal with a dungeon. Everyone had a 10-foot pole to kind of poke and prod things around. You had to deal with lighting a lot more. Who's holding the torch? Where are you? I had uh, much more intricate mapping detail. We had things like uh, provisions, encumbrance, counting arrows, lots of lots of that kind of stuff that, that wasn't really, that probably isn't as much as modern uh, role-playing games, games now. Uh, it have I missed anything? What What are some of the things specific that you, you remember components, from? Like specific. Oh spell yeah, components? material po- Yeah, material yeah. components for spells. Um, alignment a little bit different in terms of a, a codified way of doing things. But there was there's nothing nothing more exciting as a game master though is to watch your players draw the map wrong and now they're off. It was just so funny. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> nominated roles around the table where you nominated your mapper and you nominated your caller and you nominated your leader. Wow. Do, you, do you remember all of those things? Oh yeah. Yeah. Somebody had to be responsible for saying what everybody was doing because you know, otherwise it'd be yeah. mayhem. People actually telling you what they were doing themselves. Come on. How crazy is that? <laughs> you had, it was like a huddle. You'd huddle in, talk about it. And one guy would poke his head up and go, right, this is the plan. Very strange. Very, but, but you know, wonderful at the time, I guess. Um, and so as things have gone on, a lot of that stuff, a lot of the minutiae, a lot of the detail seems to have faded. Why do you think that is? I, I mean, for me, I think a big part uh, is just getting out of the way, like, to let the players role play and to let the players, like, get to the action. And, and, and also, you know, w- as a broader audi- audience comes in, right, like... There's a lot of people who don't want to spend that much time doing that or don't have that much time. And when people get older and they have jobs, they don't have the amount of time that they did. So for me, I think a lot of it's time saving and also just you know appealing to a broader audience and really 
having role play come more to the to, to the surface because mm. if you spend all that time talking about you know and we talked you talked about this with player skill versus character skill like uh, our characters are professional adventurers right they know how to search a hallway you don't you don't need to as yourself describe that and if you spend that time describing everything you don't have the time to maybe role play as much or uh get into combat as much you know so at least the least that's i see it um and i think it also kind of lines up interestingly a lot with video games especially video game rpgs when you look at the first rpg video games right they were text-based and the whole game was you literally had to type i'm doing this like i look for this and that was what the game was reactive and then as technology has gotten more sophisticated you know uh the care all that is simulated around you don't have to worry about any of that um and and a lot of these you know like computer role-playing games there is just like a search or a stealth button that you click and um and then our character just does that so i think people grow up playing those games and that's what they kind of want to expect in their role-playing games too of uh you know why would i need to be so specific um at least that's how i see it why why should i count my arrows is it surely there's a counter for that that kind of that kind of vibe or yeah or more importantly who wants to spend their time keeping track of arrows let's just assume my guy's clever enough and bought enough arrows for the weekend shelly and and just be done with it yeah and searched under the rug and and looked in this drawer and this drawer i don't need to say each drawer that i looked in or whatever right so and and um, i think um there was a lot of those old games there was a lot of sort of things built on top of uh, sort of a house of cards when we talk about definitely the older ones there it, it goes against this whole less rules easier but as somebody wanted to add something in it just was a pile of mash it's like okay well for right. initiative we're using d6 well for this we're going to use a d20 but now for thief checks it's a d you know it's a d100 and now well uh, this thing might have a skill well then we'll just throw this skill on What's changed, I think, is people got tired a little bit of that inconsistency and just um, how difficult. The revival, though, um, a lot of those folks have fixed that. You know, so OSR fixes a lot of those issues. But I think as we move into modern games, uh, it's just a different feel people are looking for. Like you said, they want to role play more. They want consistency. They don't want to have to figure everything out five different ways. They want feel like they're professional adventurers i guess you know have mm-hmm. role play things yeah. and have more choices that they can make in the old school you know a fighter's a fighter's a fighter and what makes them different is how you describe what you're doing as a swashbuckler versus a barbarian in more modern games they've codified that to allow people to experience that in a more i'm going to say realistic that's probably the wrong term but a more visceral way than you could maybe with the older the older way of looking at things. Hmm. I guess it, it, that the evolution of, of the of games and role playing games in particular, you know, people are hearkening back to a simpler time. Well, the simpler time was just before people got to it and added rules to it in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, you know, if I look back on even second edition Dungeons and Dragons and the huge amount of rules that emerged out of just that second edition with kit books and different racial stuff and it, the, the whole books just exploded in that scene in a relatively short period of time four or five four or five years just really dumping that out and and adding all that all those more rules um fifth edition dungeons and dragons and and pathfinder have both been touted as ways of the simplification and going back to less rules but osr is even even simpler than this isn't it it's even simpler than than fifth ed 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, and there's a lot of OSR games you can look at. Um, there's tons of them. There's DX, there's um, suddenly they're escaping me. But each one is what they're trying to do is keep it simple. And a lot of these games where they strip all the garbage out, um, all the strangeness that was in, period, in the, the games back then, they're not that long. Some of those books are 100 page, pages of yeah of things and they add in some interesting elements as well you know um, but they're not complicated and i think that's what people who are going back to that they want to kind of experience more you know i'm house ruling it and i'm making those rulings and i don't have to worry about you know the, all the different things that you'd worry about in a modern a modern game which has its own benefits hmm. very much so so uh I mean, there must be an appeal there in terms of, of why people are playing OSR more than and, and others. And I must admit, I've got a little bit of a, a um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, I've got fond memories of, of playing a lot of these grittier games. Yeah, there's a big nostalgia. Oh, yeah. um, how do you guys sit about where you play? Like in your ideal game, and I, and I, and I say I play, I run games for a lot of younger people, so this is not a thing at all but where do you guys sit in terms of realistic uh, grittiness or or that kind of you know that old school nostalgia in these games is it there at all um, Carl maybe not for Eric I, I I would I would completely um, I've been looking at a lot of OSR games that fix a lot of problems with like AD&D first edition I would totally play and run an OSR game based on one of these rule sets and there's like many of them I'd have to pick the one because it, it, it just would be fun to just have people say, well, I'm a fighter, but if I'm a fighter in this way, I'm just going to describe it. And I'm going to kind of role play it out because yep. it, it's not meat grinder like it used to. People now understand what role playing is. And so even applying OSR, they, they're going to role play it. Now they, you, and then you can get rid of like, okay, I'll, I won't make you look under the table because we don't do that anymore. I'll just... I'll just roll your smarts and call it good and we'll see if you found what. Yeah. So you can take what people have learned in the 40 years that makes a game interesting and you can apply it to these simplified rules that harken back to the original uh, role-playing games. I think that I think I, I would totally run an OSR game for sure, but I would use what we know now <laughs> and not try to run it like I would back then. No, they don't have to map. No, you won't I'm, have to map. Don't worry about I it. I noticed that, Eric. How about you? Would you would you dip your toe in an OSR? What's well, I mean, in terms of simplified stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because so, I, you know, I haven't really played these old a lot of the old games like you guys have. Uh, the one thing that I think of as far as old and new or old and updated is like tr I've, I've played Traveler, which I hated. This is me coming from modern <laughs> version. Just hated Traveler. I hated the character creation. Um, but I also have played Stars Without Number, which was supposed to be the kind of, you know, revived Traveler. Um, and that was almost the opposite. I mean, Traveler has a ton of weird rules, has crazy character creation. Stars Without Number kind of tightened that up, although there was still old school stuff in there. Um, like you still rolled the straight 3D6s, but you didn't have to worry about, you know, describing everything. Uh, but... For me, when I when you guys talk about this, I think of the more narrative games and how those, you know, you know, the the problem with these, you talk about OSR and all this stuff, it's like they're still kind of D20. They still have these roots in miniature gaming, right? In war gaming. If you want to yep. play with simplified rules, like for me, I love playing um uh, what's it called? Uh, dungeon uh 
dungeon uh what's like monster hearts and i'm dungeon totally World? spacing out right now um apocalypse engine games yeah apocalypse. apocalypse engine games right uh it's a very narrative game there's really simple attributes uh you have like kind of simple kind of moves um it's mostly narrative right you could like yeah. you said you kind of describe how you do it so to me that's where i would go is to those type of narrative games and i love those type of games and they don't have their roots though in that war gaming so there isn't that conflict i mean to me i see a lot of these updated but we're still using d20 you know D stuff but we're, we have less rules but then you know for me like pathfinder 2e which it did really well is compared to 5e which some people like and don't like is that 2e while it has stuff like oh you know has rules for all these things like how do you break down something or or it has all these kind of specific rules you don't have to wonder like you do in 5e um and, and yeah, sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought there, but um, yeah, I looked at stuff like Apocalypse Engine or yes, sim- you know, sim- Fate, Simple System. Yeah. Yep. I, I would just say that um, the character creation in Traveler is the one thing that a lot of people like, so that's funny that you don't... <laughs> that that's the I, one thing you hated. I, a lot of I people guess, love that I love, system. Yeah, it's. I guess it's good to not have that control sometimes. I'm just like, I want to have control over my character. Maybe some stuff, right? Like some roles, but that when it's completely random, you know, like that's not... What it's interesting, I wouldn't like to play that over and over again. That's just not how I like to do it. So, Dying in character uh, anyway. creation can be a weird, a weird feeling, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um, I, and this is, might be a little bit tangential, uh, tangential, uh, unrelated. Uh, but one thing that I've I hear a lot about is the decline in the game of the exploration pillar of role-playing games. So if we think about your three pillars being role-playing, combat, and exploration, a lot of what we're talking about here is is in some ways the removal of that exploration issue. Hmm. Um, if I look at dungeoneering, uh, but not just dungeoneering, but but any kind of kind of uh, protracted uh, campaigning, yeah, keeping tracking keeping track of your food, understanding if you've got tents, understanding how you move a group through a through through the day, keeping track of arrows, keeping track of material components, is that gritty realism of the exploration phase? Um, and I, I'm interested in you guys. I I miss that a bit. I miss the idea of of characters understanding that we had verbal and somatic and material components in spells and how that worked, um, and 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 the ranger understanding how much how many days food you've got left or whether we've got tents and shelter and things like that. Keeping track of that stuff um, is that is there any part that that can play in, anymore? Is that do you think that that kind of grittiness is also declining? Well, honestly, I don't think it is um, because for certain genres, I mean, there's a lot of games that are post-apocalypse, for example, and that's all about resource management and not having you don't have enough bullets for your gun. So there, there are tracking, um, but the in the fantasy world where, you know, why do we care how many arrows are in your quiver? I guess that is somewhere. But genres out there still have that. And if you still enjoy sort of that fear of am I going to die tomorrow because I starved to death, there's genres to go play. High fantasy, not so much, right? But there are genres out there that you can that you can go do that. I found it interesting. I, I tried to bring it into a, a Curse of Strahd game uh, last year, and the players just really reacted poorly to it, saying, oh, uh, no, we don't like this. We don't like not having enough food to, to live throughout the night. It's like, well... Anyway, sorry, Eric, I interrupted. No, I mean, I have literally played a lot of games where that's a phase of the game and you do. And and some of the systems provide that. I mean, Pathfinder 2E, they broke their systems down into encounters, uh, exploration and downtime. And so the exploration, which I think they did excellent, 
um, you know, it's it's a it's more it's narrative. It's more narrative. So you still have like you say what you're doing, what your ex. There's there's a specific list of exploration actions, and you kind of say what action you want to do. Some of the things could be searching or hiding or um, you know uh, making recall knowledge checks. And there's kind of an automatic just one roll, so you don't have to say you know it's not like you're going through this every step in the way. And then there is systems for rations, but it's not so specific, right? A lot of times, again, there's I think there's a balancing act between how actual you know simulationist you want to get um how gritty you want to get as far as okay well you need water and food right you need oh you need to have food water's every you can't go more than three days and food you can't go more than this and then yeah, yeah, okay yeah. what about yeah. extra screws for your thing you know all of that is like while it's cool like it just bogs down gameplay so much so i think you can still achieve that through the, how the gm plays it and maybe having like you just have rations those are food those are water those are like supplies right i think you you can kind of make it more intuitive make it more um kind of like how board in the board gaming world right we have these american games with tons and tons of rules and then the european games came in with kind of these like quick elegant mechanics that kind of summed it up and then there was a marriage of the two and that's the, the marriage is where i love it's you can have both you can have that feeling of you know, okay, we are getting hungry and we need to go. Um, like I played a Pathfinder game where the guy used hexes and we only had a certain amount of we could move on the hex. And then if we spent too much time, then we, we you know, we couldn't roll to get our, to hunt basically. And then so our yep. ration pool was going down, but we didn't have to be so granular about like, okay, well we have berries and protein and you know, whatever <laughs> for water, all that stuff. Right. So I think there is a there is a balancing act. Um, I think there is my my main. Yeah, point. I think I think I'm the same. I think I'm I'm not quite at the roll for mixed diet. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. make sure you need, that you need you, fat, you, right? You, you, you can't just uh, eat moose, yeah. right? You would die from not having fat or whatever. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know if nutritionally <laughs> balanced is a is a, <laughs> is a check mark on this. What if your character concept is a vegan? Well, I don't know. Now you have to worry about that, don't you? In the game? No, I'm just joking. So. <laughs> That that would be an, that would be an interesting uh, thing to consider. Like you have to eat so many nuts, and constantly you're bothering everybody for nuts. But you're, you're foraging um, forever. Eighty percent of your yeah. day is forage. So no, I do, very, I, do think cool. so, I do think some systems provide that. Um, uh, whether your players didn't like it at all it seems more like they just didn't like ex the the exploration survival thing at all. That's not what they were signing up for, right? Because it wasn't. Yeah. You know, just going hungry. They were like, I don't like that. Um, so you definitely have to have the right group or you're, or you're buying into the game saying there is an exploration part to this, or, you know, you are going to have this kind of like tracking resources. So it's all about that, the buy-in for the game, I think. And it's, um, it, it's funny. It's this, in some ways the change has accelerated as well. This is a relatively recent thing. Uh, I've found, um, I ran Hidden Shrine of Tamawachan a couple of years ago to a group, uh, with a group and that guy, that that game was never designed to be finished. Like you weren't supposed to survive it. Okay. The, the the point of the game was which room did you get to before you died? And so the traps were more and more merciless. They were more and more ridiculous as you went on and designed for a convention setting. Um, Wizards of the Coast published it as an anthology in just a normal uh, game book. And so I whipped it out thinking this will be fun and had, having no idea of the, the sheer deadliness. Um, and in some ways, I miss that a little bit, the, the sheer deadliness of dungeons and, and how ridiculous some of them were. And I do, 
harken back a little bit to this idea of competitive conventions where you'd get a group of your five savviest adventurers, and when we say adventurers, five savviest players who had good experience in playing the game to try and beat the unbeatable dungeon in either quicker or less death or um, less less turns or something like that. Um, Carl, you, you do the cons. I, I'm, I'm off to one next week, but could you ever see that happening again, a competitive uh, convention dungeon? I don't. I'm right now. The competitive. There's not really competitive, right? There, there's like a venture league and stuff, which is somewhat competitive. But everybody assumes that they're going to be successful. Really. And then there's how yeah. how successful you are, and then you're growing your character, and you have this living world kind of thing going on. I don't know. I could see it. I know there's people um, who run things like Tomb of Horror at conventions just for the grins and enjoying it. But I totally would see yeah. that as being a fun thing to do. If you had a, if you know, that's something maybe I should do. I don't know. I mean, I love running events, so maybe we get, <laughs> you know, that way I could run like twelve people through it, get a bunch of tables, and see how far each team can get before they die. Um, eh, not Tomb of Horrors, though. That, that's that's like the worst adventure ever designed. No, but Tomb of Horrors is a whole other thing, <laughs> and, and it's inspiring me a bit. I'm going, why don't I run just like a gritty hardcore dungeon where? And, and in some ways, when I, I'm running Call of Cthulhu, bizarrely, the, the whole premise of this Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu game I'm running in a, in a week or so at this con is you only have three candles. And when your candles are out, the, there is no more light and therefore horror, death, that kind of thing. So um, it's interesting. There's certainly a place for grittiness um, and certainly a place for resource management, isn't there? Um, as a player in these games, if this is something that you, you're kind of keen on doing, what, what are some of the ways that you might add some realism to your game. I know, Eric, when we play it a lot, uh, your artifice is fantastic. You are very specific about the things that you try and create or and your inventory is expansive. Is that something that you're... So there is detail there when you want there to be. Um, well, it's interesting and that's my in character. terms of the realistic... And that, and that, yeah, yeah, and that's my character, and, and we have a lot of fun kind of... Uh, when I want to build something that's crazy, I you know, I've kind of paid the price in mostly in role playing that I've done these things before and gathered resources. So now you're going to let me like do something crazy, right? Because I've kind of paid that toll. I put in, I put in the yep. work as it were. Um, put in the narrative. Yeah. You've, yeah, you've, you've put in the you've narrative started work. the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as far as adding grittiness as a player, I mean, again, I, I really think it's all about the buy-in, man. I mean, you guys talk about, like, I think there is totally a space for a kind of competitive dungeon. If that's what people are signing up to do, you're like, this is the competition. I think a lot of people would be down to do that. Um, and like you said, Carl, there is, a, even in D&D, there is the Tomb of Horror or whatever, Abomination Vaults, or I can't remember all the different names. But there is that, like, brutal dungeons and how far can you get? Um, I think the problem with a lot of those games is that the GM, if they want to, they can just kill you. You know what I mean? So you need a structured, very structured, repeatable thing to do that. Um, yeah, I don't know. And if in I some ways, that, that brings but... us that brings us to the actual point. A lot of the original dungeons had here is the trap. Here's a picture of the trap. Yeah. Here are the conditions in which the trap will kill you, and here are the conditions in which the trap will will allow you out. And then it was up to the players to push, turn, pull, spin, yep. rotate extract whatever word that they could think of because that was the magic word in the description of the room that got you out of the trap which is why yeah. we started this in the first place oh my god box text that you had to listen to exactly as read that was telling you some some little clue i mean come on this is the the puzzles of the box text was crazy in some of those old 
old adventures. If you didn't hear the right word where they said something a certain way, then you're 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 dead in the water. You you don't you miss something. You miss the fact that there was something there. That's crazy. I would I would not run an old old game that way. Um, just because again we've learned thirty no. years worth of forty years worth of knowledge, right? So. <laughs> So I, I what, yeah. what, just want to so, pile up with on James to what you said about players adding grittiness in with their characters and kind of introducing this that you you know you keep it where it's very general right the characters can search they just say I'm searching um, so it's not like you you don't apply negatives to them for not looking for specific things but if they do put in the work or do mention specific things then you reward them and that could be a way to yeah. incentivize players to actually then be kind of play in that more gritty realistic way is that so we're never like taking away from players from not being so specific maybe but you reward them you know like you've maybe rewarded me for allowing me to do stuff or you give them a bonus on their role because they said specifically this thing or you know like i have a hunter character in a different game that that tracks what monsters he's killed to try to get bonuses so i i think maybe that's the, that's the kind of way to go to at least for players who are new or you know don't have those old school ra ro uh, roots is to reward them for maybe playing that grittier way uh, but don't like you know give them penalties if they don't i think yeah yeah yeah, absolutely. And of course, this always, as we always say, goes back to communication at the start of the campaign about where your settings are in terms of the game. You know, uh, I, I must admit, just this chat alone, I'm starting to think, oh, I wouldn't mind just pulling out the old second edition rule books and, and you know, get some more pit traps in the game and hire a henchling or two to kind of push in front of me with a 10-foot pole to illuminate the space. Um, yeah, there yeah, is something right. certainly nostalgic about it. Your torchbearer. Who hits the who hits the pit first? That's their job as torchbearers. Yeah, the pit first. <laughs> and, and and you would you would go into town and go. I've got twelve copper. I need six guys. Who's going to come and walk in front of me? <laughs> oh dear, very good. Um, any other thoughts, gents, on OSR? Do you, are we? There, there's certainly a. It's an increasing in appeal, but I'm wondering if it's increasing for a very specific demographic of which two yeah. of three of us are probably sitting in the same room. Um, I, I can you I think see people it growing? Yeah, I, I think as, you know, just like there's, you know, most people, they're playing D&D &D 5e, right? That's where most people are, that's the gateway game at this point in time. That's the main gateway game. But I think people, as they play, they see, oh, there's other types of games out there. And that could be, you know, whatever, more, more mechanical games, more narrative games. And there's this OSR games that people are attracted to. I mean... That stars without numbers, which I, I don't know if you guys could consider that a revival game or not, but that had like a pretty good draw. People new to tabletop games that were like interested in it, and so I, I think there's definitely is a space for that. And um, you know, I think it's up to if you if you are into those type of games, maybe you know, saying hey, I'll, I want to run a one shot. If you guys are interested, maybe to give the GM a break, like, and then maybe you know, do it as a one shot and see how they like it, kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think there is a. There's a big desire, and I hear it a lot, um, you know, in different podcasts and stuff, rules light. There is a huge desire for people now to go for rules light games. And that goes all the way from the one-page RPG to OSR. Some OSR game systems can play in that rules light world because hmm. of the simplification and all that sort of things. And rules light is something that... The, you know, the mork board, the mork board I played the other day, and it is it is so simple. The the simplified systems are really appealing. Yeah. Yep, for sure, for sure. Sorry, Carl, continue. No, no, I think yep. the, the bottom line is that your question was, will that will people who are playing D and D and sort of these more modern games, will any of that appeal to them? 
I think it will if if they come to it as a rules light alternative. If they're looking for something less, you know, heavy, then you know, honestly, let's you know, uh, you, these modern games. Some of them have got big books, right? And there's a lot to learn, and um, there's a lot of big nuances, yeah. and you know, yeah. But then is the is the revival? It's bringing the rules light, but is it also bringing like the ten foot pole, like? Or is it kind of like it's rules light and, you know, you don't have to say I'm searching every single cubic, you know, meter or whatever uh, for a trap. And, and I think that goes to us as game masters learning over 30, 40 years. Right. So, yeah, the way things were played back then was because nobody knew any better. Right. You map the dungeon because, yeah. you know, you had to map the dungeon. Otherwise, how would you know to get out? Now we'd say, well, I mean, like you said, people are smart enough. They're probably drawing a map to get out. So why would we waste our time with that piece of it? doesn't matter if you're playing OSR or you're not playing OSR. It, it's just something you wouldn't do necessarily now, unless that's what you want, right? You want to have the full experience. But if you wanted to <laughs> learn from those 40 years, yeah, you could, I mean, you don't have, somebody could say they're searching a room and you make that role against you know, intelligence or whatever it is that you think makes sense. And then just let them know what happens. And to your point, Eric, maybe you give them a bonus if they do say, I'm going to look under the bed and search behind the curtains. And you go, oh, yeah, that's where it is, is behind the curtains. You found it. You don't even need to roll for it. You found it. And then you give that benefit of all the stuff we've learned over many, many decades of gaming while still being able to leverage that cool rulings versus rules, you know, player skill isn't as big a deal anymore, but you know, they can be clever still. I, I, it's cool. I, I think OSR has got a lot of ability to do better than it did in the old days. Um, that's kind yeah. of a rules light simplification. Yep. So I guess my final question then is given everything that we've talked about, and we're, we're probably going to reward uh, characters over players in some ways and, and, and simplifying the rule set. What would be your number one use for a 10-foot pole now? Because there's still an equipment list. You can still buy one. I mean, 10-foot pole, they're still good to, to trigger a trap. If you don't have Mage Hand or something, right? They're still good for that or to search for something from far away. I mean, it's still an exploration tool that's good. Uh, when, you, when you're encountering, you know, if you say, I'm searching the dungeon, and the DM's like, okay, roll your perception roll. And that's just kind of your role for this segment of the dungeon. And then your DM's like, well, you encounter this weird... Idol or something or this weird like here's a, well, a sack of gold coins the 10 foot pole would still be good to then okay i bought this item right and i use it to poke the the coin purse off or i use it to <laughs> search around so i i think there still is ways to interact with those specific things um it's just not making you you know use it every second carl got a, got an, an interesting use for 10 foot pole well uh, obviously when you have a dungeon that has a, a pit, you want to be able to pole vault over the pit. So that's where you're, <laughs> but, you br but this time, but you'd have to bring your 30 foot pole with you for something like that. <laughs> to get over it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, for me, it's still the perfect width of a, of a dungeon hallway. So 10 foot by 10 foot room, it's very easy. So when I am mapping it out, I get to use my pole to kind of touch from the walls. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure, gentlemen. I think I've digressed a lot from the topic. It went from no, OSR, ten foot poles, gritty realism. I think we've taken nostalgia down uh, down memory lane. We've still got a little bit of time, though. Has anyone got any final thoughts? 
Well, I, for me, I think um, OSR is a, is the spirit of of the old games. But the takeaway is, even though the old games had certain things about them, like rulings over rules, whatever, we can learn from all of our experience, leverage those rules. There's a lot of games that kind of fix the the Thaco problem and things like that. But you can still have a really fun game leveraging those simple simple rules um, today. And I'd say try it out. There's and there's a lot of versions of it. There's a ton of different OSR stuff out there. I couldn't couldn't agree more. Uh, and for me, I guess my takeaway has been: if you're after a more gritty old school style game, just get it up front, talk to your players about it, and, and then have fun. And I'm not I'm not lying. This chat, I'm going to go and design a, a, a death dungeon that you can't get out of, and, <laughs> and we'll see. Well, I might take you guys through as my first competitive <laughs> guinea pigs. All right. <laughs> All right. So that sounds like we uh, we hit that one good. Lots of lots of good information there. So hey, thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, hope you got something out of it. Uh, remember to drop by masteringtherpg.com. Learn about our projects, other things we're doing. Support us. Uh, email us, all that good stuff. Uh, speaking of email, we got Game Master at MasteringTheRPG.com. Um, so if you got a question, need some advice, again, Eric is looking for an opportunity to adjudicate differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. So please give us something to to do that. Um, and of course, there's the Twitter feed. And again, we thank uh, Daddy Dungeon Master for throwing some questions our way. So once again, um, I'm Carl with Eric and James. Have a great night. Goodbye. Goodbye.